listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Daniel Solinger, an American film producer, writer, and a director. In fact, for the past 25 years, he has performed most technical positions on a film set. And as a result, he understands the specific issues that may arise during any part of filmmaking, which has held him in good stead for producing over 60 movies. Daniel, welcome to Shoot It Now. Well, thanks for having me. Well, you've certainly been busy. 60 movies is a hell of a filmography. And looking back now, that must have seemed like an impossible number. Well, I don't know if I thought about it that way going in. I just wanted to make movies and took advantage of every opportunity I had to do that. And starting out in the beginning, can you remember, Daniel, the moment of clarity for deciding to embark in the film industry? Well, the light bulb moment actually happened for me in high school because I was quite the uh, rebellious child and I had gotten kicked out of one high school and then I got sent to another high school and then I got kicked out of that high school and my parents never let me watch TV or go to the movies. They were not big fans of that. They really wanted me to read books. And so I went to night school and I was at night school with a guy who had gotten kicked out of this thing called the Fine Arts Center where he was studying movies. And it was like, you can study film? Like... Wow, like I want to do that. So um, I applied to that program in high school and was able to spend half my day studying film and during high school and then went off to uh, university and, and, and studied it there. And that turned into a career. What is it about people that academically can fail, but the creativity can run rampant? Well, I, I suspect they're very related. I don't think the educational system is set up for original thinkers by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I think that they're probably very interrelated. One of your most successful films that you produced was in 1997, a music doco called Rhyme and Reason. And one of the things that I really like about this story is that you were well ahead of the curve. Back in the early 1990s, for those that may not realize, MTV refused to play hip hop, which is crazy to think of now, but often crazy is the currency for creative springboarding. So you exposed what was happening in this movie, and then, surprise, surprise, the film explodes with a theatrical release, and The Hollywood Reporter declared it to be one of the most profitable films of that year. Now, Daniel, back in the 1990s, how were you able to identify telling that hip-hop story from a producer's point of view, knowing that it uh, could and eventually would find an audience? Well, that's a good question. Uh, back in the early 1990s, I lived on Lafayette Street in uh, New York City uh, on Third Avenue. And uh, there was a management company called Rush Management around the corner. And there was a record company two blocks over called Def Jam Records. And a lot of my friends in filmmaking, most of us coming fresh out of NYU film school, uh, would run around and make music videos for Def Jam Records for, for all these hip-hop artists. So every time I would go in on these video shoots and talk to the artists, what they really wanted was for people to come to their neighborhood and shoot them in their natural environment, talking about the things that were going on in their life. So I had an opportunity to make a documentary 
I was approached by a filmmaker, Peter Spire, a friend of mine. He had an opportunity. He had just been nominated for an Academy Award, and he had an investor come to him and say, I'm going to finance whatever movie you want to make. What movie do you want to make? And he said, I want to do a movie on hip hop. And Daniel does a lot of hip hop videos, so I want him to be in on it too. And when I heard it, I was like, this is exactly what I'm hearing everybody say that they want. So we went to all these rappers' houses and neighborhoods and um, their natural environments and just talked to them about what was going on. And it, it was a wonderful time. It was just a wonderful time in music. And I knew at the time that it was going to become much more mainstream, and it did, and I, to the point where it's, I would say it's almost the dominant musical culture in the United States. But in the time, it was, it was, it was, it was French. So when you were filming that, did you get a sense that you were onto something? Yeah, there's. I get a feeling right from the beginning. Usually, when I'm a start a project, I can fool myself a lot of the times. But when the projects that have been successful, I've known that from the beginning that they would be, and I felt that way with that. With that, just because I knew the the artists would really enjoy it, because no hip hop documentaries existed at that time. Nobody had ever done it, so I knew that the art, artists would really respond to it, and then I knew that their fans would as well. Just explain a little bit more about MTV and them refusing to play rap back in the 90s. Uh, we got started in the early 90s. This came out in 1997, or I started doing hip-hop videos in the early 90s. I would say certainly by the by the time the movie came out, they were making MTV was showing music videos. Uh, they had a show called MTV Raps, which was Yo MTV Raps, which was all for hip-hop. And they actually did a like a two-hour special on our movie, which is kind of funny because the two hours is longer than the movie itself, but they did a, a whole special on, on the movie. Um, so I was there, we, we were make why we were making it, the cultural landscape shifted at MTV and they were starting to adopt it more. So you get the film completed and you feel like you might've captured lightning in a bottle. Then you roll out the film. Who was the distributor of Rhymal Reason? The distributor of the film was Miramax Films and took it out to 300 screens for theatrically when it came out. It also came out the weekend that Biggie Smalls was shot. So it was an interesting dichotomy because a three-year journey, our movie comes out, and it did very well. We were number one. We had the number one record on the R&B soundtrack on Billboard. The movie came out. It did very well opening weekend, but because Biggie Smalls had gotten shot that same weekend, they decided to pull it from at least 100 theaters, just people nervous that there'd be violence violence unnecessarily so in my opinion but um that that happened you know that was it was that moment yeah. in time and technology now it's expanded in ways that uh, we could never have predicted i mean if you look back at that movie that we're talking about and the equipment that you used back in the 90s to the equipment that you're using in 2020 it's never been easier to pick up a camera and shoot but the caveat is you still need to produce a compelling story that's well written well cast that's executed to almost perfection and to have any chance of breaking through that wave of films that's coming to market. It's almost like a miracle to get a film across and then distributed. How do you, Daniel, navigate through all of that congested space in the times that we live in now? That's a good question. Well, I think number one, you want to make as an original movie as possible. Number two, you have to try to cast people that mean something to distributors in it. And number three, you have to be relentless. You have to knock on every door twice, three times, four times if you have to until you get a partner that's going to embrace your film and help you get it out there to the general public. 
you obviously have a very good sensibility in terms of what you look for. What type of films are you attracted to? I like things that are more on the upbeat side, dynamic, interesting, uh, artistic, uh, with a sense of humor that don't take themselves too seriously. Um, that's what I like. Now, what I actually end up working on may be very different because it's very much a function of what else is happening around me, who approaches me with money, with projects. So I'm very much at mercy of what is being offered to me. And my really, realistically, my only power is in turning things down. I can turn down stuff that I don't think is worthy, but I can't necessarily fully conjure up, you know, although I do try and in some ways I can, but it's hard to conjure up your own ideal project. So you get a lot of uh, things coming to you and you've got your own sensibility and taste from a producer's point of view. How often are you surprised with material that you would never have been interested in, but the package comes to you in such a way you read the screenplay and you go, wow, this is something that I just want to get out there into the world? Um, I'm constantly surprised. Uh, I never thought I would. I don't like watching horror movies, but I've done several of them partly because they're really, really fun to make. And that was has is always a surprise to me that I, whenever I get offered a, a horror project, I, I embrace it and I'm, because they end up being just tremendously fun to make. It's interesting too because often you have to be careful because the the most surprising stuff can slip through your fingers. The actually stuff that's really unique and original that you want to do and you want to be associated with at that script phase when you are first evaluating it, it's very easy to throw it out just because like they're not following formatting or they're this is not their characters aren't developed the way that they're supposed to. If it's very easy to not see the beauty in a wholly original piece when it comes to you in the script form. So that's that's the the thing that that I find a, a little bit most challenging. And and I've had made that mistake a couple of times where I passed on something that ended up being really good. That's the most frustrating aspect of producing, turning something down that goes on to become a diamond in the rough, or if you're really unfortunate, that turns into an Oscar contender. Daniel, what's the three most important attributes in your mind that a good producer should have on display in producing films? I'm a physical producer, so I'm somebody who knows how to take a script, take it all the way to market with the complete finished film. So for me, it's a function of balancing the money with the ideas and being able to maximize the money to service the ideas to make the greatest film possible. And I think that's my best talent as a producer. And I believe is the most important thing for a producer to do, be able to do. As I get on in my career, the more and more I see having a good network is incredibly important and valuable. So both sides on, let's say, the, the talent side and agents and distributors and on the crew side, knowing really good, dependable workers, uh, that network is your success or failure, in my opinion. And filmmakers connecting to producers is such a critical part of the filmmaking process. Often with the wrong producer, it can compromise the filmmaker's vision, which we could do a whole podcast on its own. But I was particularly interested to read that you never compromise the creative vision solely for the purpose of staying on schedule or on budget, 
which is a pretty brave and commendable producing attribute to have in 2020. Filmmakers listening to this podcast right now, their ears just perked up. So explain a little bit more about the creative vision and you not compromising on it. And that would probably that has probably cost me a little bit of work, some work in some sectors of the community where their their only goal or priority is making a certain film at a certain budget. For me, the movie is what's going to last forever, not the budget. So I will. I'm a responsible filmmaker. I do everything possible to bring a film in on schedule and on budget. But that's not the only priority. Top priority is making a great movie, and because if you come in on time and on budget and you've made a subpar movie, what, what is its worth? What is its value? How long will it last? You know, that's not a journey I want to make, you know? So I don't want to be reckless, especially when I'm dealing with other people's money, but I don't want to shoot myself in the foot when allocating a few more resources would have been the difference between making a great movie and making a mediocre movie. That is such a refreshing approach to hear from an experienced producer when often it's easy to say that this is the budget, there is no movement on it, we've got no more money. Uh, but in this case, can you give us an example where you've taken that approach and perhaps have wanted to film an extra scene or two and therefore you've had to go out, find more money to achieve the integrity you want for the film? Well, I have a movie now that we have four offers on and we're about to make a sale and it'll probably come out in the next 12 months called King of Knives. And we had shot the movie. We'd gone through all the expense of finishing the movie. And we just felt in our gut that the opening scene was not strong enough. And it wasn't. And we decided at that stage, it's going to cost more money, but let's not end it here. Let's let's go out and get the that opening scene the way it's supposed to be and finish this movie in its best possible form. And that's what we, and we spent the extra money and we did that. And I think it is helping us now as we are on the process of selling it. And I know it's going to help us when we're, when it's out above to the public and they are choosing to watch it or not, because that opening scene, you blow it, they could just turn it off. So now we have an opening scene we're happy with. Do you consider yourself a filmmaker's producer? Hmm. I would like to have that reputation. I don't know if the directors that I work with would agree with that. Though I've, I've come to turn, you know, come to some he very heated discussions with some directors who I suspect don't feel like I was supportive of enough of them. But uh, I, in my mind, I would love to be considered that. And during your producing career to date, how do you find projects and connect with filmmakers? Most projects come and find me. I, I, I just try to keep my network open and informed about where I am and, and if I'm available or not. Generally, projects come and find me, and then I have the choice of uh, taking them or not taking them and, and can build and shape my career based on what I choose to take and not take. At the time of this podcast, America is now in a worse position with COVID-19 than when the first wave hit. Bearing in mind, we are still in the first wave, and it looks like it's going to be some time before things can resume in the filmmaking space in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. What are you hearing on the ground with fellow producers and filmmakers for those trying to get back up? Yeah, it's rough in America right now. Um, 
sadly. It didn't, and it doesn't even, didn't even need to be this difficult. But I would say that industry has come together and come up with a series of protocols for how to get back into production. I suspect that we will end up having to go to some other countries in order to actually shoot things because I don't think it'll be safe enough in America to, um, to do it. So I, I assume that I, I use New Zealand for an example, if they would let us in, but uh, you'd go to someplace like New Zealand and quarantine for 14 days. Maybe it takes a month, take the whole cast and crew, go through a, a, a whole quarantine process, do all the testing before we get there, but you know, quarantine and then, and then move forward with the protocols that have now been outlined by particularly the actors union. That's the, the, the one that matters the most. You basically have to get their buy-in to whatever you're doing because the actors are going to be there, not six feet apart from each other, talking to each other, you know, potentially exposing each other to um, risk. So the protocols that have to be in place to make sure that the actors are safe and comfortable in doing their job is, is, is the most critical link in the chain. But we have a set of protocols that go through all the different departments and best operating procedures for everyone to follow in order to keep the risk of infection uh, as low as possible. Insurance alone, in terms of bonding of film and general insurances, they're not easy fixes around COVID. How do you work through all of that? And what are you hearing about uh, bonded films in, in the US at the moment? I haven't spoken. I have an insurance broker that I work with on all my movies, and I haven't had this discussion yet because I haven't been going into production yet. I suspect that they are just not going to take responsibility for a COVID outbreak. There's no way that they would insure against that, especially in the States at this time. You could, I'm sure I could get a production insurance policy with COVID ex excluded, a normal production policy. And I do know projects that are shooting. I mean, people are, are out there shooting. They're very much on the fringe. That's not the studio projects, but there are projects out there shooting even now. And I suspect as time goes on, there will be more and more that will start to shoot. Getting insurance to co including coverage, co including COVID coverage. I don't, I don't know if that's even possible, but I would, I'd have to call my broker to find out. It would be regular production insurance with an exclusion for COVID and no bond. Um, but a bond is a sort of separate issue. A bond is that you're not going to go over budget. And if you do go over budget, the bond company takes ownership of the film. And have you heard of shows that were in the middle of production when COVID hit and these sure. films will never come back because it's just too much of a, a monumental effort to get everything back? Yeah, there's a lot of movies and TV shows that uh, were in various stages and they're struggling on how to finish. The lucky ones may have had two or three days left of shooting and have figured out how to finish it without having to do additional shooting. Uh, the rest of them are just out there now in, in limbo land. But we're all kind of in limbo land now. The whole industry, whether it's shooting or film festivals or just, you know, you, you want to get your movie into the movie theaters, it's all up in the air for now. And we're not sure how it's all going to sort out. As mentioned at the top of the show, you've produced over 60 films. Then you decided to switch it up a little and become a director. And we'll talk about the film in just a moment. But after such a long period of producing, why the step into the director's chair? Well, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I've done most of the, I've done all of the positions on a film set, like whether write or act or direct or you know PA or operate sound or grip or gaff. And I think all those things make me a better producer. And I, but I don't think anything makes me a better producer than directing. And I, 
I've directed uh, commercials and some other things along the way, so I'm not completely foreign to directing. Actually, as the most experienced person on the set, it's not unusual for me to be in a position where I'm a producer working with a first-time a producer with 60 credits working with a first-time director, where I'm basically sitting beside them and sort of nudging them uh, on how to direct a certain, you know, up to up to a professional standard. So it's, it wasn't that big of a leap. Uh, I didn't expect to be that. You know, I, I that project was something I worked very hard to try to find another director and just never did. And I said, well, I guess I'm directing it. Now, you produced the film as well as directed the film, which means, of course, having different conversations with yourself from two different perspectives. How did you find that? I, I get the um, the understanding that sitting next to a director and helping him along the journey of directing because of your experience, but it's something quite different when you are the director and also the producer and you're having that conflict of, okay, my producer's hat is on, we're running over time, but uh, your director's hat is that you want to do another couple of takes for the scene. How did you iron and manage all of that? Well, they actually go together incredibly well. You can be a much more focused and effective director, also understanding the producer side. So there's no waste. There's a very little waste, in my experience, in doing the two because you know exactly what you need, what the budget is, what you know. I find that they go together very, very well. I don't find that there's a, a conflict between the two. But this was also a documentary. It was not a, a narrative film, which I think there would be more challenge on. So did uh, directing give you more of a pre an appreciation for the director's chair? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's there's no end to the amount of empathy that I can learn as a producer for a director. Every time uh, I learn more or have more empathy for the director, the, the better it is for all involved. The documentary film is called Immortality or Bust. It's a documentary about subject matter that you're pretty passionate about, I understand. Tell us a little bit about what enticed you to direct the film. Well, the film Immortality or Bust is following the 2016 presidential campaign of a candidate named Zoltan Isvan, who ran under the Transhumanist Party, which he formed himself. And um, transhumanism is nothing much more than believing that science and technology can radically extend human capabilities, including radically extending our life expectancy. So Zoltan created this bus that he turned into the shape of a coffin. He called it the immortality bus. And he used that to drive around the country to promote his candidacy and spread the ideas of transhumanism. And I had the good fortune to meet him and to be able to follow him on his journey and to document it and turn it into this movie, Immortality or Bust. So tell us a little more about the immortality side of the film as it deals with aging or more to the point how to stop the whole aging process through new technologies, which are not that far off in the future. Yes, it's looking at aging and radically extending life ex expectancy. Uh, the metaphor they like to use is that if you have a car and you maintain it very well, if you're constantly going in and changing the spark plugs and changing the oils and maintaining it and buying new belts, that car can live indefinitely. There's no end date on it if you take good care of it. There are more Model T Fords that are out there running very fine because they've been well-maintained. And they take the same approach to our body and um, believe that you can 
if with proper maintenance and control that there's no end to how far you can go take your body. So accelerating technology, do you feel that that's a little bit at a tipping point right now? I do. I think that just the way I felt when I made Rhyme and Reason that the idea that hip hop was going to become a dominant music culture, I feel that the ideas behind transhumanism are going to be mainstream and the dominant thinking in the next 10 to 20 years. So I feel like that uh, that it's ideas and things that, that we're all going to have to wrestle with. And I'm hopefully just one of the first ones to introduce it to the public. But it is available in the U.S. now on all the major platforms, iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, and such, but uh, will be rolling out internationally over the next six months. So if it's not available to you now, you will be able to see it in the next six months. So looking down the time tunnel, do you see transhumanism in 20 years from now just a part of the human thinking and acceptance that prolonging life is technology that will be widespread? I think it will be... People will talk about transhumanism in 20 years the way that people talk, to, talk now about global warming, let's say, or, or climate change. 20 years ago, it was really sort of out there and fringe and people didn't quite understand what they were talking about or that it was possible or, or that it was over the course of the last 20 years, it's become to the center of the culture. And I believe that the same will happen with transhumanism. When I was two years old, they put a man on the moon and I was, I was able to watch that. Uh, I don't remember it, but I was able to watch it. And they, in order to put the man on the moon, they needed a computer the size of a building. That technology, every 18 months since then, the, the, the price and performance of that technology has gone down in half. It's twice as more powerful for half as much. So that now, today, that amount of computing power is on my watch. Well, in 20 years, that will be the size of a blood cell. Computing will be in everything. Everything will have its own computer system embedded into it. And what they're talking, what you're talking about, the, at the 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 atom collider. One of the things that they are working on and perfecting now is precision atomic building. So building things, structures, people, think I mean, food structures items matter atom by atom from the ground up. If they can figure out all the different subparticles to atoms, they're talking about machines that will be able to build on a subparticle level. So this is the future that we're going to be walking into in the not too distant future. Politics are obviously intertwined with progress, uh, particularly around AI. Do you think politics is starting to change? I hope so. I, I'm not to editorialize too much, but we are such in such a dark time politically in the U.S. at the moment. I, it's hard to have hope, you know. But um, well, that was so exciting. Well, that was what's so exciting to me about uh, making immortality of us because this was the first time I saw somebody who was looking at the exponential growth of technology and saying, "Let's do something political about it." And he went to the U.S. Capitol and he created a transhumanist bill of rights that he read at the Capitol, and it laid out you know, legal protections for cyborgs and artificial intelligence, I believe will be the first time when we look back historically that any sort of effort was made in that in that area. I am excited to see self-driving cars. I personally feel that they are going to make us safer. If, if an AI uh, became our lead politician, honestly, that would I would feel a little bit more comfortable with that because they would not be prone to the whims and emotions of, of the masses or of the individual. What has happened to Zoltan? What is he doing now? Well, he, he ran for president in 2016, then he ran for governor of California in 2018. 
he went to the Republican Party and ran against Trump in this election cycle and didn't win the primary. Um, so this is uh, something that he's very serious about and will continue trying to find a, a place for himself in American politics. And the Transhumanist Party since 2016 has really grown. And they also, not in New Zealand, but they have an Australian transhumanist party. So they're in there's transhumanist parties that have pop- popped up in a lot of other countries around the world. So this is an idea that is that is sort of catching on and, and migrating out across the world at the moment. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for sharing your story and some of the films that you have made. As mentioned at the top, it's a lot of films, over 60 films that make up your filmography. And thank you so much for coming on and talking about it to shoot it now. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.